Welcome once again to Unprofessional. I'm Lex Friedman, joined as always by Dave Wiskus. Hello. Hi, Dave. Hi. And uh, today we have a fantastically special guest uh, by the name of Daniel Jalkit. Hi, Daniel. Hi, guys. Now, I got to get this out of the way that I. Uh, Jalkit. Right? Oh, you said butchered my name. Accurate. You will go <sighs> down in history as the. How do you say it? Oh, just like you. Oh, okay. Now, and do you. Are you always Daniel? I am always Daniel. And you can. Uh, you can always uh, see a little sneer on my face if you uh, come across anybody who tries to instantly nickname me as a Dan or something like that. It's like, <laughs> or worse yet, a Danny. Right. Yes. Exactly. Uh, I think we've all uh, come to agree that there are no adult Dannies. So um, <laughs> now your Danny listeners will be. Uh, We're going to get angry letters. Angry from letters from Dannies. Danny. The Danny uprising. <laughs> <laughs> I've never liked our Danny named listeners anyway. Yeah, well, it's like what's uh, what's Lex uh, short for? Uh, it's actually it's short for Lex. Short, no, that's not short true. for Lexus, it's, right? Like a, like the, your luxury. Exactly. That's short for lexiconographer. My right. my full name is Alexander. Right. Oh, Alexander. Of course. Yes. So people see me, uh, so you see my name written, and then they just immediately assume the Alex, which I think is maybe mm. even a fairer thing to excuse than immediately calling a Daniel Dan or Danny, because Alexander is a long it's name. A, it's a mouthful. It's a little. It's a little daunting. It's a, it's a little pretentious. I mean, if I if I picked it myself, I wouldn't say that. But I feel like Alexander is like you know, it's there's a lot to say in that name. It's not as pretentious as Alexander. That's true. Or as Alexandra. I, uh, right. And my, my parents went with Lex from day one, which is fine, mm. but I, I, hate, I hate getting called Alex. I think people with four-syllable names, uh, they're just being greedy. <laughs> Save some for the rest of us. Right? I've, I'm Dave. I get one. I prefer calling you David. You're, uh, wait until you open up your mail in a few days. <laughs> oh, I will. I don't know what that means, but I like that threat. I sent you something. I should explain. Uh, I bought the the Indiana Jones Blu-ray set, and I sent Lex the DVDs because he really needs to watch those movies. Ah, right, yes. which we because we learned about uh, this uh, shortcoming. All three of us, of course, were at Singleton in Montreal, and Lex was shamed on screen on uh, stage. I actually took pride in the fact that I hadn't seen it. I got to be on a panel about Indiana Jones, having never seen Indiana Jones. Yeah, I walked out on that panel, and I, I said, uh, Brent and I, Brent Simmons and I walked out together, and I said, how do you put a guy on a panel about a movie if he's never seen the movie? You'll have to listen to the Incomparable podcast to get that answer. Uh, but, but Daniel, before we really dive in, tell, tell the listeners who you are, what you do. Oh, I'm Daniel Jalkett, and I do podcasts. Uh, I go <laughs> around uh, podcast to podcast, uh, <laughs> pouring myself out to the highest bidders. And in my oh, spare man, time, uh, in my spare time, I do customer support. And in every uh, remaining moment, I do hardcore. Don't I know where your mind is going? Uh, hardcore Mac and sometimes iOS engineering. So uh, people may know me from Red Sweater Software. People may know me from Twitter, Daniel Punkass. Uh, I'm just sort of a general, general purpose rabble rouser and occasional productive. Contributor to the Mac community. We're gonna have to cut out podcast. This is a family show. <laughs> no, it's, it's uh, that's that's exactly what I'm obsessed <laughs> with right now. Every time I see that name, I think, what is the story behind Daniel Punkast? Literally today for work, I was taking a screenshot of a Twitter app, and I had to scroll past you because I didn't know if I was allowed to have Punkast in the in the screenshot or not. How did you come up with Daniel Punkast? Why are you Daniel Punkast? Um, well, it's funny. It's one of those things where I picked a screen name reluctantly. 
agreeing to um, take part in the AOL chat phenomenon. Mm-hmm. So um, I had a friend, the friend who uh, coerced me into this chatting. Uh, you know, I, I mean, don't get me wrong. I've been using IRC since I was 12, but there we uh, go. you know, getting on AOL and this whole, at the time it was like to use a, uh, AOL chat, you had to use like a web browser or uh, I think there was a, you know, AOL dedicated client for the Mac, but I was, you right. know, I was kind of grumbling into this and I don't know. She said, I was also kind of a punk, you know, so I still am. Uh, and she's, she used to call me punk ass. So, um, I just, I went with Daniel punk ass on a, on a kind of a whim and it stuck. Uh, it's funny for a long time there. I actually, you know, there, I, I see, I, I'm, I completely gloss over now any even mild sort of, uh, um, offensiveness of the name because to me, it's just like, you know, I, First of all, I'm pretty hard to offend, but like punk ass is just not a very in the spectrum of uh, purported swear words. It just doesn't rank, rank very high. <laughs> right. Um, like calling somebody silly. Yeah, right. Silly bones. You know, oh, did you just say silly bones? Huh. I feel like punk ass is only really offensive if you partner it with bitch. Yeah, punk ass <laughs> bitch. Yeah, that's right. Right. Yeah. So uh, I actually had this uh, for a long time. I had um, sort of a split personality online. I I was theoretically secretly Daniel punk ass and everything public about me was Daniel Jalkut on, uh, you know, red sweater blog and doing my red sweater, uh, software development, participating in mailing lists, all that stuff. And then I had this secret quote unquote secret, like live journal account for Daniel punk ass. And I just remember one day being like, you know what? Screw this. We're going to go, we're going to go full on Daniel punk ass on the world. And, um, you know, at the time it was like, that kind of uh, normal cautionary protection of your, you know, cause I was using Daniel Punkass to do like blog posts that were, you know, profanity laden and a little, a little sick. And, uh, at one point I just realized, you know what, I'm going to kind of own this and I don't, I, <laughs> I am what I am. Yeah. And you know, I don't actually use, um, Daniel Punkass on Twitter to say real provocative things too much. It's mostly just kind of, you know, medium grade, uh, humor or, uh, technological observations. But, you know, uh, at some point I sort of just ag- agreed to myself that it was okay to be done Daniel punk ass. And since then it's really become like the tamest of handle names to me. And right. I went through a similar thing. I had to make the decision relatively early on that I, I had to be okay with being me and saying things that will occasionally get me in trouble. That's just, it's part of who I am and I can shy away from it or I can embrace it. And I felt like embracing it was the smarter track. I don't know if that's how true, but that's how I felt. <laughs> it's funny. You know, I, I do think about, you know, uh, during a, a presidential debate or uh, an Eagles football game, I tweet way too much. And I, every time, you know, I end up losing a couple of followers, <laughs> but I just think to myself, you know what, if people are going to unfollow me because they don't want to see what I have to say, I have to be okay with that. I'm just going to tweet the things that I feel like tweeting and others can suffer or enjoy as they see fit. But you have to, you have to make the call. Are you doing this for you or are you doing this for an audience? And of course, both are going to be true, but you have to, you have to find some balance. You have to be okay with having your voice. Right. And it's funny when you were talking about screen names and landing on Daniel Punkass at, in your AOL days, I was thinking about, I, I fell into Lex Fry 
That's how I say it. Some people say Lex Free, but I fell into L-E-X-F-R-I accidentally. Where When I went to college, I had always just used Lex. And uh, the, this was the first year, I guess it was 1998 at Brandeis, and it was the first year that they let you have a username. Up until then, your everybody's uh, email addresses at Brandeis were ST for student, <laughs> and then their mailbox number, uh, which was usually a four- or five-digit number, and then their graduation year. At Brandeis Edu, so everybody was ST, and then a series of numbers at Brandeis Edu. But we got to have usernames; it was exciting. And I type into the thing. Like the first thing I did was set up my Mac G3 tower so I could get set up. And I type in Lex, and the system crashes, and it says, "Sorry, it's unavailable." So then I check a little while later, and say, "Okay, I'm going to sign up now," and it says, "Sorry, Lex isn't available." But I didn't have Lex; I couldn't log into Lex, but I had somehow claimed it by trying it. So then I said, "I'll do Lex F," and the same thing happened. Mm. And then I tried again a little while later, and I said, okay, I'll be Lex Fry. And that, that time it went through. And then l- later that afternoon, without my having done anything, they had aliased the other two names to me as well. But my login name and the, the one that you know was shown automatically when I logged in to, to send emails in through Pine, which was the email option of choice then, uh, always said Lex Fry. So I became Lex Fry from then on. There you go. Don't feel too bad about Fine. I mean, we were just talking about IRC a second ago. Not even right. we. Daniel was talking about IRC a second That's ago. That's right. Fine, IRC. That's a rabbit hole we could go down if we wanted to get Lex fired. Yeah. yeah we could talk more about Pine and see if I can get in trouble for talking about technology. That'd be good. How is that? Is that is that one of the stipulations here? Right. Yeah. Literally. In order to keep my day job, I literally don't talk about You're literally about unprofessional. That's right. Yes. Hence the name. Yeah. So let's shift gears wildly to get away from technology so that I don't get fired and so Dave doesn't get to do this by himself. And uh, I I couldn't do this without you. I know. It's sweet. I love you. I love you too, man. Well, I have. uh, I was thinking about this actually. Um, Dave mentioned, you know, that can be a good talking point. What's a story that, you know, sort of uh, you never get the chance to tell? And I realized my first reaction was, well, I don't have any interesting stories. And then I just like started thinking for 20 seconds. And I realized actually my life is a series of extremely interesting stories. So, uh, um, everybody's life should be exactly. So, uh, you know, briefly, um, I was born in 1975. I lived in a van until I was about four. Then I uh, van? was on welfare really? with my mom until I was about eight. Then I became a punk rocker sort of at 13, dropped out of high school at 15, um, got my first gig at Apple at 18, ran for Santa Cruz city council at 19, uh, graduated and got a permanent job at Apple at, uh, age 20 city council. <laughs> we'll get there. We'll get there. Um, quit Apple at 27 and got a second degree in music at 30. And since then I've been developing red sweater software and raising a family. So, um, each one of There's those no part of that story that isn't totally intriguing. Right. So it's kind of a choose your own adventure story. Right? <laughs> <laughs> yes. All right. Well, first we need to find our segue. What were we just talking about? Oh, Lex getting fired. Yes. Right. Yes. 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 So, um, I never got fired. I don't think, but, uh, I did quit. I quit Apple. That was big. How many years did you live in a van? Uh, about four years off and on, you know, so my parents were, um, free, free roaming, California hippie types. That's crazy. Now, I, I literally don't know how van living goes. Like, I, I imagine 
there's no kitchen in the van and no bathroom in the van. Uh, Where do you shower? They the vans vary. Obviously, some of the vans are a little bit more like a RV than you would guess. So I don't have it. So were you, were you in an RV style van? <laughs> I know we had a uh, like a sink, like a kitchen sink type thing. Oh wow! But I don't know. It was if, a minivan. Yeah, I don't know if we peed in the sink or not. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I would have. I, that, that's what, that would be my instinct as an adult, but I don't remember. I don't have, uh, I don't have much memory of that time. But um, <laughs> Your instinct would be to pee in the sink, not just go outside? Naturally. I mean, yeah, what if it's cold outside? Pee right. in the sink. You pee in the sink and you shit in the trash can, right? I am so glad I didn't wind up sharing a room with you. Depends on whether you've had Indian food recently. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Call back. I love it. Wow. So you wanted this one to be gross too, right? No. <laughs> well, so how, how'd they get, was the van living by choice for your parents? Yeah. You said mm-hmm. that they were kind of hippie types. Yeah. Right? I think they were, you know, enjoying that freedom of not working and <laughs> having a house that drove. A house. Well, what's funny, what makes this story even slightly more interesting is that my mom and my dad each had their own van. So I was sort of living like in separate apartments wow. with my parents. Um, they, is that like a separation thing? Um, I don't know. You know, uh, they did end up being separated for a few years there while I was living with my mom. But I don't know if that uh, van, <laughs> that van independence had something to do with that. Wait, wow. were your parents gypsies? <laughs> no. Huh. I can uh, pretty much assure you of that. So I, I just can't get my head around how you would even enter into this situation. I've lived in some pretty weird places, but I've, I've never lived in a van. Well, you know, you got to go visit some place like... Uh, like Bixby Park and uh, uh, I think that's in Long Beach. And I don't know if it's still this way, but or or like um, parks in uh, Berkeley. You guys have been to Berkeley, California. You see, you see how people live. And uh, there's just I think that was just a lot stronger in the culture back then. You know, this is the mid '70s, major flower power going on, and uh, you know it was. So was it like the Occupy movement, but with vans? Um, I think so, and without a mission statement, perhaps. Well, so at some point you, you, you mentioned you go from living in a van to not living in a van. I have to imagine that's a pretty amazing transition for you as somebody who's to that point essentially only lived in vans. <laughs> Holy shit, rooms. Yeah, well, you would, you would think so, although... <laughs> this house doesn't move. I mean, you know... There's an entire room just for the van. <laughs> <laughs> oh my God, a toilet. <laughs> yeah, so I don't know. I, mean, I, w- I would I, having a four year old now. Uh, I have a four year old and an eight and an eight month old. I would project based on my experience of how he sees the world that you just don't get too ruffled by the little things. You know, it's like eh, this is the way that mom and dad say living is. Then this is what living is. And then uh, you know, you go from one day living in a crib to one day living in a bed to. Uh, you know, there's lots of changes at that time. And, uh, my son doesn't seem to really remember like even a year ago. So I imagine it was just kind of like, uh, well, probably a little bit of like, Oh, this is new, but you have nothing social, no, no, no society norms to sort of compare it to. Yeah. Change becomes normal. After a while, when you move around, I moved around a ton when I was a kid and when, when you move around that much, you just, you don't even think about it. Yeah. You accept it. None of it seems weird until you're a grown up. Yeah. Well, tell me about, tell my therapist about it. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, it's uh, it's uh, I got things got pretty stable for me after I was about eight. My mom and dad had been separated at that point, got back together, and I was living in Santa Cruz, which um, so things got stable, but definitely didn't get 
didn't get normal, you know? <laughs> um, right. so it's fun, fun place to grow up. Lots of interesting friends. You know, me and my, my friends, we, uh, we had our, we had our fun. Yeah. It was kind of a great place to live too. You know, I had been living, uh, younger when I was younger, I was living kind of all around California, various parts, but doing the bulk of my growing up in Santa Cruz had me perfectly situated to kind of get the apple, you know, I got, I caught apple fever as, uh, not until I was actually, um, you know, almost an adult uh, in college already, actually. But um, did a medical professional tell you this? You like <laughs> yeah, apple fever. Yeah, there's only one cure for it. You need to uh, <laughs> go to Cupertino and throw yourself onto the altar of Steve Jobs. And actually, actually I joined uh, Apple before Steve Jobs, so I guess that wasn't exactly true. So you came back to it before he did. Yes, or I came to it before he came back. Yes, right. So what was your first role there? Um, I was a QA tester. So I had my first gig was just a weekend job, like beta testing some, some like, I think it was actually like a third party game, but maybe to like make sure it worked on a PowerPC Mac or something like that. Like, oh, this is exciting. New PowerPC Macs. We're going to make sure it, you know, all these popular games run. So that was my first gig. And that kind of opened the door with the uh, contract agency at the time who was placing people. And then I ended up with this extremely lucky um, QA testing contract job in the system seven group. Now was this, was this work that you enjoyed doing? Oh yeah. I mean, this was great. This was me just, uh, I got to just, I'm a debugger like by, by nature. So, uh, I won't go too deep into this Lex. So we're not uh, going to techno, but, uh, <laughs> basically keeping it, keeping it on a, on a human level, it was like, um, I got thrust into this group where everybody was doing stuff that I just thought was like the work of gods. Right. And I'm just like this, <laughs> that's pretty great. I'm just like this peon who is lucky enough to be in the same, you know, floor down the same, down the hall from the people who are doing the actual hardcore work. And, um, I ended up getting hired there doing actual engineering, uh, on system seven stuff. And, uh, basically they just, I just got really lucky and fell into a group where me kind of voicing my interest to grow as a programmer and be part of the development world was met with like some, some crazy people who threw threw down like crazy programming tasks for me. (laughs) It's funny that you talk about falling into it. I was just thinking how a, a, a surprising amount of my life, I, especially professionally, but even not, I kind of not, I wouldn't say I lucked into it, but could have just as easily not happened at all. You know, came from, came from whim following more than anything else where I had this very cool or at least a very satisfying job when I lived in LA and I was happy with it. I had nothing to complain about. And then I just happened to be cruising Craigslist uh, for men. I mean, uh, I was looking at the job listings there, and there was some job that I saw was two minutes from my house. And I thought to myself, boy, that would be better. And then you're reading and it talks about their game room and how they have free lunches certain days of the week and uh, how you get stock options and all this other stuff. And I had no reason to leave the job I was at, but I decided, okay, I'll apply. And I get that job, and I was hired as a developer, and then... I realized I really liked the product stuff more, and so I started doing more and more product stuff for them. And then it, it, the company was it was the parent company of MySpace, and this was back when MySpace was still big and beloved. Mm-hmm. 
And I ended up going for, while there, you know, I met some good people. And when the company got bought by News Corp and it became horrible, we all left. And I did a startup with some of those guys. And then I did that startup sold to a company founded by other people who I had met there. And all that stuff happened and fell into that way because I had just randomly looked at Craigslist, which I hadn't been looking at each day or anything. I just, Hey, I'm, I'm bored and I'm sitting around in my crappy condo in Los Angeles. I'm going to look at Craigslist and did and saw that job. And it led not just to that job, but my next two jobs at least. And then, you know, it's right. It ended up having significant impact on my life. And I, uh, it was lucky. I find that the most interesting things that happen to me or the best things that happen to me are the things that happen because I just ask somebody. You find yourself in situations where there's something you want, you don't know how to say it, you don't, how, you don't want to be a jerk, you don't want to articulate, and I find that if I just say it, that's when good things happen. When I was in Australia uh, a few months back, we, we went to the zoo, and I, I had it in my head that while I was in Australia, what I really wanted to do was pet a kangaroo. I'm not exactly sure why. The original idea was we wanted to go to an Outback Steakhouse, but it turns out that's not really a thing. Uh, in fact, we learned that a lot of what I know about Australia is a, is a big lie. Uh, they don't have Outback Steakhouses. Uh, nobody there drinks Fosters. I don't think I saw any Subaru Outbacks. And it turns out that koala bears aren't even really bears. <laughs> this is bullshit. But the koala bears, they're also not very friendly. Do they at least call barbecues Barbies? I didn't hear that either. The koala bear thing, uh, they... The koala bears are, are evil, and they have STDs they can transfer to humans. Oh, boy. <laughs> I'm told. Just don't do those things with koala bears. Well, no, uh, they, if, they, if they pee on you, they can give you koala-midia. That's, well, now we've all learned something. <laughs> but anyway, I went to pet a kangaroo, so I go to the zoo. And I go up to the counter, and I asked if I could pet a kangaroo. And, and of course, they said, well, no, this is, this is a zoo. You don't get to touch the animals here. I'm like, well... Uh, you know, I've, is there somebody I can bribe? Is there something I can do? And I will no. but there is a special ticket you can buy to go back into the kangaroo area when they're feeding them, but you still wouldn't be able to touch the animals. And so I said, well, I'm just going to skip that. And we're walking around the zoo we get back to the kangaroo area and it's this giant fenced in outer area with a tiny, tiny fence around the center area. And the kangaroos are behind what is effectively uh, a log held up about a foot and a half high by posts. And I don't know if you know much about kangaroos, but it turns out they can jump. Ah. And you would think that that would be good. Like, I got excited. Like, oh, well, maybe they'll just hop around. Well, clearly it's okay. This isn't a fence built to hold a lion back from killing me. So apparently the kangaroos are okay. But uh, they were all back in their area. And, and there was a zookeeper and a veterinarian who were, like, doing stuff and giving them food. And so they, they had no interest in coming out and visiting the rest of us. And I, I went up and I asked the – as she walked by, I asked the veterinarian – if I could come back and she of course says, well, no, this is a zoo. You, you can't really touch the animals, but there is a special ticket you can buy to come back while we're free. I'm like, well, no, that's not, not really what I wanted. But right as I'm saying this, this woman comes up and she hands them a ticket, presumably the special ticket and comes back to behind the kangaroo area and starts feeding them and petting them and playing with them and posing for pictures with them. And I'm like, well, that, that's what I wanted. Why can't I do that? She said, well, this is, this is the, the special ticket. You're not really supposed to let you touch them, but, you know, it's pretty much okay. I'm like, why didn't somebody tell me that? I'll go buy the special ticket. I'm like, well, we stop at 2. And I look at my watch, and it's like 2.03. Like, ah, oh, fuck, son of a bitch. So I figure I'll hang out for a few minutes. Your inner monologue is extremely profane. A little bit, yeah. So I wait around for a few minutes, and I go up to uh, the, the, the zookeeper. It was down to just the zookeeper. Nobody else was really around. And I figure, well... 
she's roughly my age and maybe I can pull a, a Brent Simmons here and just be really charming and, and get back there. So I go up and I'm explaining to her, Hey, I really wanted to come back and, and pet the kangaroos. It was my, my one dream while I was in Australia. And she's like, well, we have the special ticket you can buy. <laughs> I know all about your special ticket, but I kind of, uh, you know, I, I smile and I kind of bat my eyelashes at her hoping something will work. And she kind of looks around and she says, all right, tell you what, you come back here. As soon as, as soon as these next people leave, you can come back. But if anybody sees you, then we're friends. And that's why you got to come back here. And of course, immediately I say, hi, I'm Dave. I'm your new friend. But she lets me back there. And uh, I got to play with the kangaroos just because I, all I had to do was ask. That's touching a, a few times. It, but, it sounds like really all you had to do is beg. I feel like that's more <laughs> begging than asking. Uh, no, it's that I didn't, I didn't let, uh, I didn't let small things stand in the way. And I, I went after what I wanted and what I wanted was kind of stupid, but it didn't stop me. Yeah. I, you know, I, I can't relate to that as well because I'm generally speaking, I am not the kind of person who will go um, asking people to make exceptions or bend rules or give me a special clearance or, you know, uh, anything like that. I, I'm more of the self disqualifier by nature. So I'll look at a situation like that. I'll say, Oh, well you can't pet kangaroos. I'm out of here. And, uh, Move on to the next thing. Uh, the biggest challenge for me in my in in my life, like you know, standing between me and various accomplishments, has actually been, you know, the little gatekeeper in your head who says, "No, you're not. Uh, you, you you know, you, this this would be the voice that would say, um, there's there's a kangaroo over there, and it's totally legit to go over there and pet it." But, um, you know, what if the kangaroo bites you or what if, uh, what if, what if you get koala gonorrhea from, <laughs> from petting the kangaroo or, um, you know, maybe I'm not, I'm not really kangaroo petting material, right? Uh, looking back at my life, the things that I have felt lucky about have, yeah, some of them have been circumstantial. Like, like I said, I grew up in Santa Cruz. I happened to be, you know, a 45 minute drive from Apple, um, but then there was lots of stuff like overcoming the voice that says, you know, only only godlike creatures work at Apple. So actually, you know, high school dropouts who went on to get a computer science degree uh, after three years of community college and two years of university probably shouldn't be um, walking up to Apple's door and knocking on the door and asking for a job. But you, did you literally knock on the door to ask for a job? No, I didn't. But uh, okay, just check. But I did literally knock on the door of the um, contract agency that Apple at that time used for almost all of their staffing. Oh, okay. So that took going to this company and saying, actually, it's kind of funny at the time. I wanted to work at Apple almost immediately after getting my first Mac. So I actually got a Mac, and before I had even learned much about it. I was knocking on the door of this contract agency saying, yes, I'm experienced with the Mac. Um, I guess in that sense, I was sort of asking them to make an exception for me, but I was just overcoming this kind of fear of, um, you know, I'm not cut out for this kind of thing and saying, you know what, uh, let's see if I can make this happen. I'll go over there and show them my best, uh, you know, interview performance and we'll see if they think that's good enough for the job. Right. And it turned out that that worked. So, um, I, let me tell you, I was scrambling to learn as much as I could about the Mac, especially after I knew I would be going in to my first day uh, testing the software for the for the system. 
So Apple was your kangaroo. That's right. It was my kangaroo. <laughs> it's you know, it's I, I think I fall somewhere in between you both where where Dave was willing to go up and, and beg. No, I just asked multiple people. I, I I don't love begging, but I never I, I work hard not to have a problem asking. So the the way that I am worst about it is with um buying stuff. <laughs> I read an article a couple of years ago that everything, every price is negotiable. You just have to negotiate. And I said, this can't possibly be true. And then I made it my lifelong mission to prove that it could maybe be true <laughs> instead. Um, so I am a frequent obnoxious negotiator, especially when buying, you know, not a dinner, you know, if the price of dinner is $29, we'll pay $29 and tip. But, you know, if we're buying any kind of big ticket item, I uh, I will make some kind of offer, and I am amazed by how often uh, people say yes, where you would not expect it at all. You know, like you, the Apple Store would not be a good example, but you know, you go to <laughs> a Radio Shack, and you're like, hey, since this thing is so overpriced, and we both know it, can I just grab the batteries as well? And they're like, fine, <laughs> and it's you know, it's not like they're sneaking it past the company. You know, the manager's there, and he's like, yeah, whatever. By the way, Dave, Dave is working really hard not to make a joke about my being Jewish right now. So I, I just, I want to, I would never, I would him. never do that. I would never do that. Yeah. I can laugh when you do it, but I can't do it. <laughs> now, you eventually, Daniel, decide you're going to leave Apple and go out on your own. So how do you, I mean, you loved Apple, as I, as I understand it from your story. How do you get to the point where you decide, you know what, I love this, but I'm going to do something else anyway? Well, you know, what's interesting about that is I did not decide to go out on my own. Um, I decided to leave Apple to go to school, and there was no, no clear plan. In fact, when I left Apple... You know, they have this like really great fitness center there that has limited capacity and you can get a locker and you get to keep your, your clothes in there and they even wash your clothes for you. Um, but it's a long, long waiting list. So what shows you where I thought my life was going when I left Apple is that the, the very last thing I did when I left Apple was go to the fitness center and put my name back on the waiting list because I thought... If I come back here in two years, maybe I'll be <laughs> about ready to get back into the uh, into the locker room. Um, that's amazing. But that was my only. Um, that's as far as uh, as far ahead as I could see was I was going to go try to go to school for music. That's the interesting part to me. Why music? Because uh, I like music, and I you know had studied some. I took one music theory class in college the first time around. Um, you know, I've always played like guitar as casual hobby. I think it was sort of one of those things where the first time around I, I felt strongly, especially having like dropped out of high school. Um, I kind of felt like I had this obligation to a get through college, prove to my dad mainly that I could like redeem this, this, uh, broken or, you know, this at least highly unconventional educational track. Um, and I also, uh, had a real easy time with computers. So for me, like taking a computer science degree, don't get me wrong. There were some major challenges during that period, but it felt like the easiest path through college. So I just did that. And, uh, you know, there was always a little bit of regret. I think that I didn't get a degree in something more separate from what my kind of automatic intrinsic interests were. Um, you know, I, not to say music, music is an intrinsic interest of mine, I think, but the computer science stuff was definitely for at the forefront. So, uh, 
I, when I took the job at Apple, I actually remember thinking to myself, I don't want to be one of these guys who's like 50 and has worked here for 25 years. So I actually set myself a limit. I would leave by 25. And I was two years late in that by leaving, leaving at 27. It's, it's a weird thing. I was obviously extremely pleased to have like gotten such a great job so quickly out of school and so young. But I also felt like this. There's a there's a sort of attractiveness of Apple that um, you're doing things. Even back then, even when Apple was sort of in the doldrum years, we were doing things that you know were really cool. And like I thought most other companies were not doing. And it's easy to get drawn into that even nowadays i'm sure it's much stronger you're like i'm working on you know new operating systems maybe new devices that nobody else knows about um right and i just didn't want to end up looking back at my life and saying whoa i had like a lot of you know variation in my childhood obviously lots of different exciting things happened and then i spent 25 years doing the same job at the same company with the same commute, maybe, maybe the same office for 25 years at the same locker room in the same fitness center. Oh God, that scares the shit out of me. You see these people, they, they, it, it seems like their life is already planned out for them. They, they go to high school, they graduate, they go to college, they graduate, they get a job, they get married, they have kids, they buy a house. Are you telling the Lex Friedman story right now? Yeah. And you're so, you scare me, Lex. That, that, I mean, for, well, I mean, for some people that that's the thing, but for me, I just, I never wanted to feel like my life was, uh, was planned out. Well, the, the one way that I, I think you don't have to be scared of my life is, you know, I, I have changed jobs a lot and I've changed careers a lot. You know, I used to, I was working, I mean, I never worked anywhere as cool as Apple, but I was working at internet companies doing internet company things. And then I said, fuck it. I'm going to go work for, you know, I had, I had seen a tweet, I, maybe I told the story already, but I had seen a tweet, um, from Jason Snell, who I followed on Twitter, saying, if you want to write reviews for Macworld, email this guy. And so I started writing these $25 reviews, 200-word um, reviews of iPhone apps. And I said, man, there is there is no point to doing that because I was you know, working at an internet company making $12 billion a year. That's good money. Yeah, I know. I wanted to be published in Macworld. But then they, they quickly liked me, and I got more and more freelance work for them, and they paid better and better. And then I said, you know what? I'm spending all weekend long doing freelance stuff for Macworld, making more freelancing for Macworld than my wife had been making from her full-time job as a teacher. That's good because teachers make bank. Right. But, um, yeah, she made $800 a year. No, but I, you know, I, I was just having so much fun and I would devote so much time on my weekends to writing more stuff for Macworld. And then I would go to my day job where I had been one of the first 20 employees at this company and then was, you know, one of 600 employees and it was totally not fun. And, uh, that's, I mean, so that's the, my point to you, Dave, is don't worry. Don't fear for my life because I have made exciting changes that don't follow the true normal suburban dad pattern by, by shifting career gears. Well, that's good. That's good. And I do a podcast. And, you know, the only reason I do this podcast is because you asked. And I said, okay. I think, I think, I want to say you asked me. That's bullshit. I'll tell you the story real quick. You had been, and uh, if you have to censor any of this, you let me know. No, we we can't. Yeah, we we would have to cut the entire thing out. I can't tell any of the story. Well, anyway, the short version of the story is: you ask me. Great story, Lex. And they were doing they they were doing a, a their burgeoning podcast network. They had this young guy you probably haven't heard of this guy John Gruber who was doing a a poorly listened to podcast. And you said, you know what, I should do a podcast. And then you asked me if I'd do it with you. And I said, okay. 
So that, that's our advice on this episode of Unprofessional, right? Is say, okay, when Dave Whiskus asks you for things. I like the idea of giving that advice. When we were in Montreal, I, uh, I, we were at a, a bar one night, and I, I wasn't really trying for anything, but I was talking to a, a, a waitress, and uh, not in any spectacular fashion, but just kind of got shot down. And it doesn't bother me. But later, I think it was the next day, some of the guys were giving me crap about it. And of all the things you could make fun of me for, that's got to be the least offensive. I am willing to get shot down. I am willing to ask the question and hear a no. That doesn't scare me. What scares me is wondering what could have happened if I did ask. See, I am terrified about asking the question and hearing no. Um, but I'm also, but that's so the, 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 the big decisions for me that have usually come up have been when for some reason, some circumstance, you push yourself, you get yourself to that point where you actually have the opportunity to make the decision yes or no. And then there's no more like cajoling other people. There's no more, um, you know, trying to be at the right bar at the right time to ask the right connected person for the right introduction. You just have to decide, okay, somebody just asked me, do I want to do this podcast? Do I want to take this job? Do I want to, you know, uh, uh, quit Apple, whatever. And you, you've got to figure out how to say, how to say yes if that's the right thing. Um, you know, what's what's interesting is I think I sometimes think about like Merlin Mann on the Back to Work show sometimes talks about like how so much of uh, his folk, his emphasis on kind of taking control over, you know, his time and his life is to say no to say no to a lot of people. Right. Like cause he's got people actively, you know, begging him for things he's got people saying you know please come speak for free at my conference please come right you know just be a guest on my podcast please come uh write a guest blog post for me uh please give me some personal private advice and email take some time out of your day to try to guide my career and it really makes a lot of sense i think what he says in those instances to learn how to say no how to block people out firewall your sort of time but um the the flip side of that is just say yes and work out the fear and, and details of all that afterwards. This is when the thing in question is actually something that will help you grow or um, get you into a position where your career will change. You, you know, you'll get a new job that's like at Apple. Yeah, I think the line the line is that you should be okay saying no to the things that other people want and saying yes to the things that you that's want. That's a good. That's a great way to sum it up. I think. And the the thing is. Here's the twist on that. Um, until you've done something once, you don't actually know whether it's what you want or not. So part of this is being willing to say yes to things that might be what you want. Uh, a good example of this actually is speaking at conferences. Uh, it's a really, really stressful, anxiety-inducing thing for me. I've, I've done it you know, probably 10, maybe 15 times now, it seems like, at various events, conferences, user groups, whatever, it still scares the crap out of me. Um, but what I found was the very first time I did it, I was scared. I didn't feel like I did a great job. I finished, wasn't completely happy with it. But boy, was I glad that I did it because it felt like one of those oh, things yeah. where it's like, oh my gosh, I just leveled up, you know? And it's like, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, that's why I keep doing it, actually. All, you know, one of the things Marco said uh, at the Singleton Conference was he, he, you know, reflected on the fact that he had previously sort of sworn off conference speaking because he had such a terrible time at another show. Um, 
And I totally relate to that because it can be so nerve wracking. And if you feel like you bombed in any way, it's like, I never want to go through that again. Um, but when you, when you just keep telling yourself, you know what, I'm going to say yes to this. We'll, we'll bomb maybe. Um, you know, like I mentioned earlier, I, I ran for city council in Santa Cruz. I got like 200 votes where like the next, the, I was dead last. Um, <laughs> The the, the the person like next up on the list got like probably 2000 votes. You know, it was like, it was right. very clear to me that I was the, I was the Marco at that conference in, in that instant. Um, right. I would be shocked if I could find 200 people who would vote for me for anything. Yeah. Well, so you know. e- even then uh good job. Well, right. But, and the, but the big, bigger point is I didn't know before I ran for city council of Santa Cruz, whether, running for political office was something that was going to be a good thing for me or not. Right. Right. I could have done it and I could have found out, you know what? I'm like the next Barack Obama, open the floodgates and let the support come in. (laughs) But as I found out, I'm a very opinionated person. Uh, You know, who knows? Maybe one day if I got the itch again, I could run as a more responsible adult and do better than 200 people. But um, I basically learned Mm, yeah, that was exhilarating. I definitely never want to do that again. I thought at the time, <laughs> um, but it's such a great like. It, it was again. It was another level up. How many? Very few people can say they ran for public office, and and now you know that's that's the real magic. You don't have to wonder what could have happened if you had ran. You'll never sit around looking back at at what might have been. Right. Right. You know that you're not Barack Obama. That's right. <laughs> and and I still don't know what. And I still don't know that glorious feeling of a kangaroo's nose under my palm turns out they smell like maple syrup i'm pretty sure that's where maple syrup comes from now (laughs) it's kangaroo milk yeah yeah something like that man is that disgusting and i spent the summer living in another country because i was chasing after hey what, what could happen if i did this and it blew up in my face spectacularly but at least now i'm not going to sit around for the rest of my life wondering what might have happened if i had tried right right the the one life regret that i think i'll remember um, is the one time that I didn't give myself that chance where I, I tried, you know, my big thing, my wife and I, she was at that point, just my fiance, uh, moved to LA right after college. And I started taking classes at the groundling school because I love improv comedy. And I love many people who graduated from the groundling school. And I wanted to be on Saturday night live. That was my goal. And the groundling school is very competitive and none, Surprisingly, especially now, lots and lots and lots of people want to go there because they see it as their way to get on Saturday Night Live. They were all in my way because I was using it to get on Saturday Night Live, so it was frustrating. But, you know, you have to pass each level, and they hold you back a lot, and they make you retake classes. And eventually, if you get to the highest levels, you get put on a wait list because there's so many people. I mean, many people get kicked out before you would get to the highest levels, but there's still lots of people who are waiting to take those higher-level classes and one or two people who teach them. And they keep the class sizes small. So I had been finally got to the highest level and I'm waiting and waiting and waiting. And they just are never calling me up. They're never giving me the call saying I can finally take the class. I'm off the list. Um, and then my wife and I decided we were ready to have kids. So she got pregnant and we moved to New Jersey. And the day after we moved to New Jersey, the groundling school called and said that I was ready to take the class down. Oh. <laughs> 
And, you know, I, we talked about different ways that I could go back and, you know, stay with, cause I mean, we just left. So I still knew plenty of people there and I could have tried couch crashing, but you know, she was pregnant. We were starting a family. We were getting ready. And I, was, and I couldn't even start the class until right around the time the baby was going to be born. And I just said, you know what? I tried, I did try yeah. and it took too long and I want to, I want to have a family. I want to be a dad. And I definitely don't want to be a dad who was off in LA trying to, get through the groundling school while my kid's being born or, or growing up. And it's a, it's frustrating still. And I watch Saturday Night Live and yell at them for not knowing they should hire me. Uh, but apparently they almost never pull from Macworld. Oh, really? It seems like that would be an obvious yeah. source. The Mac, the Macworld improv school. You know, you'd think they'd want like, you know, the Macalope on there, maybe, I don't know, Glenn Fleischman, but they don't hire any of us. It's crazy. You know, I ran into, uh, I ran into her, uh, I uh, I glimpsed from a distance and then tried to av- avoid making uh, obvious eye contact with um, <laughs> with uh, Rachel Dratch at uh, mm. a bar in New York, and <laughs> it was one of those things where it's like, um, is that Rachel Dratch or is that just somebody looking really cranky at the bar? <laughs> uh, go take, I gotta try to take a closer look. Oh, that's Rachel Dratch. I think it might be Rachel Dratch looking really cranky at the bar. Uh, and then I, I stopped and I reflected for a minute and I realized what, what was going on. This was after she had left Saturday Night Live. And uh, I was at a bar that it turns out I heard later or discovered later is like a a watering hole for SNL cast. Uh, oh, interesting. And uh, it, it didn't occur to me until sometime later that actually the time that I saw her looking grumpy in this bar was uh, on a Saturday night in season Ooh. at about 1230 <laughs> she's probably just like i should still be on that show <laughs> interesting but uh that's anyway that's my that's my close call with uh snl you know i'm sure that if i would have talked to her we would have hit it off and then she would have been calling lauren michaels and i would have been going on saturday night live and oh, you could have been my in thanks it, for nothing it would have really pissed you <laughs> off though if you like spent years trying to move up the ground links and i uh bumped into rachel dratch at a bar Got on the cast. That would have been hard. Yeah. Hey, guys, before we wrap up, I just want to take a minute and mention our sponsor, Pixelmator. They make a uh, beautifully designed, easy-to-use, fast, and powerful image editing app for the Mac. As somebody who spends a lot of time in Photoshop, I I have certainly my opinions about image editing programs. And I got to tell you, this thing, uh, it feels right at home on the Mac. It is gorgeous. It's beautifully laid out, beautifully designed. It feels like what Apple would do. Uh, and it's extremely powerful. The new version, the new dot release 2.1, is uh, it's got it's Retina ready, which is a big deal to me. It's iCloud enabled, uh, ready for Mountain Lion with new effects and a new effects browser. Right now on the Mac App Store, it looks like it's on sale for twenty nine ninety nine, which uh, that's that's a pretty good deal. It's a great deal. It's cheaper than what I'm spending per month on that other image editing app. So yeah, Pixelmator. It's a it's a terrific piece of software. Check it out. So. Uh... You know, speaking of uh, speaking of the big screen, Saturday I never I never got on Saturday Night Live, Lex. But I don't know if you know this about me, but I was um, I was uh, in a pretty famous movie. <laughs> by by pretty famous, I mean several thousand geeks around the world watched it. What was the movie? Um, it was Trekkies Two, which was the okay. highly unsuccessful sequel to Trekkies. Uh, I'm, I'm looking this up on IMDb as he's talking, and the, he's absolutely telling the I'm truth. I'm absolutely this telling This is the about truth. like Star Trek aficionados? Oh, you know Trekkies, right? Oh, please, come on. 
He hasn't seen uh, Indiana Jones. He hasn't seen Alien, and he hasn't. This guy hasn't seen. And shit. he hasn't seen. I haven't. Se- I haven't seen Trekkies. Trekkies. I thought they prefer to call themselves Trekkers. I don't know what they prefer to call it. So it was actually the the the, the funny story aspect to this is that I, me and my friends in Santa Cruz, put together a, tre- a Star Trek fan band on false pretenses. We weren't really big Star <laughs> Trek fans, but. That's funny. We did it because we knew they were going to be filming for Trekkies 2 in Sacramento, California, and that they were going to have a punk rock show of Star Trek themed bands. <laughs> so, uh, what a terrible idea. So, we put together, we had actually, as it happened, we had actually played once before as a fake Star Trek band. But so, our second ever fake Star Trek punk band show was in Sacramento, California, and filmed for by Paramount. I believe that was the company doing it. Believe it or not, and uh, yeah, there's a few, probably a good minute or so footage of me <laughs> dressed up as Data playing guitar on stage. <laughs> oh my a punk god! Band. So what? What? What did you play? Like what songs? What's your set? Oh, we had a bunch of songs that were basically like loose covers of other, you know, rock songs with substituted lyrics. We had we had. Or, oh, oh come on, give me give me an example. Wasn't like space songs, it wasn't um, like space oddity or anything. Miss him up there with a the theremin. One of them was uh, the Star Trek or the uh, Sesame Street theme song <laughs> 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 with uh, substituted words. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, don't, I can't actually think of too many examples, but you can if you go out there, if you search hard enough, you can find pictures and even some audio from there's like these weird like, you know, I don't even have to I don't, shouldn't even have to preface this with the qualifier weird, but some weird Europeans were <laughs> like, uh Oh my God, I found this really amazing punk rock Star Trek band. It's, <laughs> you know, I, I should mention, though, that you're not the only person in this conversation who's on IMDb. Oh, really? Oh, God. I'm, I'm not explicitly directly on IMDb, but my wife is in IMDb, and I'm listed on her profile as her husband. She's listed on IMDb for, uh, among other things, her appearance on the show... Trekkies 2. Queer Eye for the oh. Straight Girl. It lasted for girl. one season. Uh, it was it was three gay men and one lesbian named Honey Labrador, and <laughs> uh, she was the first person they made over on that show. And it, uh, the show only lasted thirteen. That's episodes. incredible. She was like the the last one they aired, I think, but the first one they taped. And the best part is, she found the gig to get on that show, and I, I wrote her application for it. Um, she found it on Craigslist, which means at the end of the day that both my wife and I have been on Craigslist to find men. I mean, yeah, stuff. Well, there stuff. you go. So uh, just goes to show, uh, put yourself into funny positions in life, and uh, <laughs> Lex Friedman will probably try to take advantage. Um, <laughs> I often tell people they should say yes and be open to new positions. <laughs> Didn't work with the waitress, I'm afraid. <laughs> 